Well, it's good to be with you guys again as we continue in the People of the Promise series. So after the death of Joshua, the people of Israel sought to establish themselves in the Promised Land, and they had really large spiritual needs. You're students of the Bible, so you will remember the Israelites were a stiff-necked people. Uh, They usually had a habitual pattern of sin, and in Judges we see that again and again and again. They would fall into apostasy, and then God would discipline the nation, usually through enemies capturing their land. And after a period of time, they would cry out to God for help, and then God would deliver his people through the leadership of a judge. And then for a while, there would be peace, but eventually this pattern of apostasy and dis, uh, dis- discipline and help, this would continue again and again. It would repeat, it, it repeat itself. And we see this pattern throughout the book of Judges. In fact, it's a very deliberate literary device that the author of Judges uses, and he uses it seven full times in the book of Judges. And we know that's to symbolize completeness, only unfortunately in this case, it symbolizes Israel's complete fall, downfall into unfaithfulness. See, the purpose of the book of Judges is ultimately to point readers to the truth that left to their own way, Israel tended to quickly walk into the pathway of sin, as we all tend to do. In fact, one of the main verses in Judges captures the problem very well. You guys will remember in Judges 21-25, we read that in those days there was no king in Israel, but everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The relative nature of this cycle of sin was perhaps the author's argument that Israel tended to do better under the leadership of a very strong, God-fearing individual. And I believe it helped to set up the scene for the future establishment of a monarchy that would arise in Israel. But until that time, God raised up judges to deliver his people out of sin and back into favor with God. And these judges fulfilled very, a very specific role in Israel, delivering God's people from injustice and always through a military means. They also symbolized God's patience and faithfulness to his people, pointing them and us to God's greater promise that one day someone would come to be the ultimate deliverer, saving God's people from their enemies both physically and spiritually. This was God's ultimate plan. And tonight, we're going to take a closer look at one of those judges, Deborah, in chapters 4.1 through 5.31. And we're going to consider the details of Deborah's life as we learn from her calling and her confidence, reflecting on how her position and the other characters in her story, surrounding her story, point us ultimately to Jesus Christ. And so tonight, we're going to begin by discussing Deborah's calling. So we're in Judges 4, 1 through 531. That's a lot to read, so we're not going to read it all at one time. We'll, we'll go through it as we walk through the story this evening. Uh, feel free to follow along with me. You will remember the story. In uh, verses 5 through 1, we learn that Israel has fallen back into this sinful cycle that I just described to you. So God raised up the king of Canaan to punish them. And the commander of the Canaanite army was a man named Sisera. And he led an army, a very strong army, it says, of 900 iron chariots, which he used to overpower and to oppress Israel for 20 years. And eventually the people of Israel, they cry out to God, and they need help. 
And then we are introduced to Deborah, who lived in a city or in a place called Ephraim. Now, let's start in verse number four, and we read this about Deborah. It says, now, Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. And so very quickly about Deborah, we learn that she served three particular roles in her lifetime. She was prophet, she was wife, and she was judge. Now, when I think about this story, when, it, when I read through it and, and I witness her fulfilling these roles, I believe there's a word that we could use that links Deborah's ability to all three of these roles. And it's one that describes one of Deborah's most remarkable qualities. But it's also a word that I think sometimes modern audiences have a difficult time attributing to Deborah. And yet, she was gifted by God with this ability. And that word is leadership. So think about this for a moment. As a prophet, Deborah was a spiritual leader who communicated with God and delivered his messages to the people. As a wife, she very likely had a managerial-type role in her home, living with her husband. And as a judge, she was a very respected leader. And she was responsible for making important decisions as the people of Israel came to her for judgment. And she would resolve their disputes. But there's three interesting observations as you read her story uh, about these roles. First, Deborah was the only judge specifically said to function in a legal manner in the book. The other judges don't do this. Second, Deborah was the only judge not responsible to lead a military campaign. And then third, Deborah is the only judge who's also said to be a prophet. And so she's unique in the book of Judges. Now, these observations, they've created a lot of debate among biblical commentators who quite honestly sometimes seem a little bit uncertain about what to do when they come across Deborah. Then it's like they're not exactly sure what to say or where to put Deborah. But I think the text makes it very clear that Deborah was known for her leadership skills, which were crucial to her success and ultimately the success of her people. So let's pause for just a moment to consider her significance. Deborah was a judge and a prophet. Perhaps this biblical account, if you think through biblical accounts, perhaps this one more than any other provides us with insight into the significant ways that God will use women to impact his kingdom purposes. I think it's interesting. Like God has no problem with a strong and a capable and a gifted woman like Deborah. Not at all. Right? She, this woman doesn't intimidate God in the least. And yet, uh, this passage is significant because we see two women in action. We see a woman that God has greatly gifted. He's given strong leadership ability to Deborah. And she's got extraordinary gifting and ability. And then later, we're going to learn about a woman named Jael, who's just a, com- she's just a common individual. And yet, God's going to use both of them in extraordinary ways uh, in the texts. Now, some teachers will argue that the only reason Deborah was in leadership is that Israel had fallen so far away from God. Um, They had fallen so far, and there weren't any men at this point any longer to lead Israel. They argue this point in part from chapter 5 in our text, which is called the Song of Deborah, in which she rebukes several men for not participating in the battle that we're going to look at in just a moment. So let's just skip ahead for a moment to chapter 5, 16 and 17. And let's look at a piece of Deborah's rebuke of these men 
who didn't join the fight for just a moment. She says this. She says, why did you sit still among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling for the flocks? Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. And Dan, why did he stay with the ships? Asher sat still at the coast of the sea, staying by his landings. See, the argument goes that when men lapse spiritually, their faith is replaced for a desire for personal safety. And then God turns to women, and they receive the honor that men would have received if they had stepped up. So this is kind of the argument that you'll read. And I do think that there is a lesson here for us men. Like I think we have to pause and consider that for just a moment. We need to be reminded that men can act cowardly, right? We can be passive. Sometimes men are afraid to engage. Men can ignore what needs to be done. We can make excuses instead of doing what God's called us to do. In fact, I'm sure we all know some men who would likely look at the task in front of them and cry out, there's a lion in the streets, right? Like we know this especially when a man's faith is slipping or if it's lacking, especially when a man is doing what seems right in his own eyes as opposed to obeying the clear word of the Lord, which is what we see in these chapters. So I think this is a lesson that we need to learn. I think it's a conversation for us men to have, but I don't think that it needs to be made at the expense of a capable female leader in the scriptures. Deborah was not proven capable simply because there was no capable man available to lead. Deborah was capable because God gifted her to be capable. The text never actually says that there was no male leader to be found. And when we pull too much on that thread, I think we explore it, but when we pull too much on that, I think we miss the impact of what God's really attempting to say through the leadership of Deborah. The text instead suggests that Deborah had a long-standing and an established ministry to the people. In verse 4, we learn that she, had, she was already judging Israel at this time. She had actively been judging them. In verse 5, we see that she is a trusted leader whom the people sought out and uh, came to her. They've been doing this for some time. In verse 6, we learn that she fulfills her role as the mouthpiece of God, as the prophet. God speaks to her, and she's quick to obey him. And so we see that God has gifted her with wisdom and insight and leadership ability. In fact, teachers shouldn't be too surprised to find a woman like Deborah. While she was certainly unique in the time of the judges, she really wasn't unique in the whole of Scripture. The reality is that throughout the Bible, both men and women have been used in very significant ways by the Lord. They both have led, they both uh, have prophesied, and they will again. So For example, just consider Joel 2.28, which even promises this idea. In the last days, God will pour out his spirit on all flesh. Sons and daughters will prophesy. So I think it's important for us to remember that. We tend to look at stories like Deborah's through a particular lens, right? We look at it through the lens of leadership as gender-specific. And we should look at it through that lens because in the church... Leadership is gender-specific, right? And that's okay. That's right. God has designed it that way. That's the way that that should be. But I think when we're talking about leadership roles in the church and we're talking about spiritual gifting, we're not necessarily talking about the same thing, right? Spiritual gifting is not necessarily gender-specific. 
And if, and if you read the story of Deborah, I think you'll see that she really has no issue at all with God's established gender roles. She's not questioning that. She's not trying to step out of her lane. That's not what this story is about. Just consider first in verse number four, when Deborah is introduced to the reader, she's introduced as the wife of Lapidoth. Now, I don't know like that this is really fair, but if Deborah were alive today in such a leadership position in our society, if she was like a modern feminist who was leading in the United States, probably she would likely have a hard time being introduced by her husband's name. It's possible. But back in her time, this wasn't an issue for her at all. She had no concern about being identified with her husband, even though she was the most influential leader in Israel at that time. So I don't think that this is any bit of modern feminist theology finding its way into our biblical text tonight. Deborah understands her place. In fact, later in the text, when she's relaying God's message to Barak, there's no presumption on her end. She isn't attempting or suggesting that she should take on a military role. She isn't claiming that the army belongs to her. She doesn't want to lead it. Instead, she summons God's leader. God tells her to call Barak, and she does it, and she gives God's message to Barak and tells him to go lead. This is what we see her doing. Her role is to be the mouthpiece of God, and she stays in her lane. Deborah understands her gifting. She understands her calling, and she understands her place. And I think that's actually a beautiful picture of humility, because when we know who God's created us to be, when we understand the task that he's given us to perform and we go about doing that to the best of our ability, we're walking in humility. We understand the value that we bring to that task. It's when we step outside of that and we try to take more than what God's asked us to do. That's where we begin to struggle with the pride. That's not what we see in Deborah this evening. So she understands her gifting. She understands her calling. She's not stepping beyond her role. So I think if we can remove the gender role conversation from her story, we can truly begin to see what God wants us to learn from Deborah. Because what matters in this story really is God's power and his ability to bring about his purposes. I think a main theme in this chapter is how God will use whomever he chooses to use whether man or woman, whether weak or strong, whether confident or hesitant, God will use whatever tool or vessel he desires in order to accomplish amazing things. And he does it with no apology. And he does it for his glory. And he actually does use Deborah in one other role. If you look with me in chapter 5, 7b, you'll see that Deborah calls herself Israel's mother. She says, until I, Deborah, arose, I arose a mother in Israel. I I find this significant for one reason. I believe God uses Judges to point us forward to Jesus Christ. Because Judges is a book about God delivering his people from this huge mess that they've created, right? We see it just gets worse as the book of Judges go on. I remember when my kids were little and we used to let them listen to some Bible stories at nighttime when they fell asleep. And I remember thinking, maybe we should download Judges and let them listen to it. But then I was like, what am I thinking? Like Judges gets pretty rough the more you go through Judges, right? It's a big mess. And God's continuing to use his people to deliver, like his chosen people to deliver his people out of that mess. 
But that's also the story of the gospel. God is delivering us out of the mess that we have made. And each judge in some way points us towards the greater deliverer and judge, Jesus Christ. And one aspect of Christ that I, see, I believe we see in Deborah is his parental type comfort for his people. So Deborah calls herself a mother in Israel. And often in the Bible, uh, we learn about God caring for his people in this way. In fact, consider Jesus' lament over Israel in Matthew 23, 34, when he says, How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. Just this beautiful, this beautiful verse, parental type verse of care and comfort for the people that he loves. Or consider Hosea 11, 3 through 4. Now, Hosea prophesied around the time of the northern kingdom's fall. And he was teaching God's people about God's loyal love. And the story of Hosea and Gomer foreshadow the love that God has for all his people. And we read this in Hosea. It says, yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms. But they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness and with bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yokes on their jaws. And I bent down to feed them. This is just a beautiful picture of a loving parent. But it's also, I think, a picture of an immature child who is unaware of the love and tenderness that's being lavished upon him. Israel is that immature child, unaware of all that God has done for for Israel in the day of their helplessness and in the day of their rebellion. And then I remember, as I'm reading this, do you remember where Deborah is from? She's from Ephraim. Now, I don't think there's any direct theological connection really to be made here, but there are some similarities that I just want to point out this evening in these two passages. Because in Hosea 11, 3 through 4, here's what we have. We have a prophetic message in which God is speaking of a compassionate, mothering type of love for Israel, and especially Ephraim. And God says, I taught you to walk. I took you up in my arms. I led you with kindness. I stooped down to feed you. Look at the way he's loving and caring for his people like a parent. And then in Judges 4, we have a historical narrative of a woman from Ephraim who is a mother in Israel, providing a compassionate leadership. And she walks with Israel into danger. And she encourages them with a prophetic message of God's strength while she demonstrates kindness to them. Both of these passages are pointing us towards God's ultimate act of compassionate leadership. And ultimately to Jesus Christ who would fulfill prophecy by delivering his people from both sin and death. Deborah's biblical and historical purpose is much more significant than a discussion on women's roles in the church. She has a calling, she's fulfilled her purpose, and she points us to Christ. And so how about us this evening? Do you believe God has a calling or a purpose for your life? Let me assure you that he does. As believers, we are all called to love God and to love one another. And how do we do that well? We take this message of God's love to a lost world. We are commissioned to share the good news of Jesus Christ. 
But what does that look like in your life? How has God gifted you for that purpose? When is the last time you took time to consider your unique gifting and the positioning of your life to fulfill this purpose? I would, I would just encourage you to begin that discussion with God tonight. Let him use you that way. And a quick side note before we move on. I think the story of Deborah has a couple of unsung heroes. And one of those heroes, I believe, is Deborah's husband, uh, Lapidoth. Scripture doesn't tell us really anything about him, so I may be stretching just a bit here. So allow me a little bit of room. So take it with a grain of salt if you want to. But I imagine husbands, men, uh, that he was married to a very strong and a capable woman. And maybe you are as well. Maybe your wife is very strong. Maybe she's very capable. Maybe you're raising a daughter who's very gifted and very strong. Uh, Maybe in that sense you're like Deborah's husband. I think the tendency in Christianity for men at times is to feel somewhat uncomfortable and intimidated by strong women. Especially when they're very gifted. Sometimes men even resent these types of abilities when they see them. In women, And I imagine for Deborah to have had the role that she had in her society, her husband must have been supportive of her. He, like the other men during that time, likely recognized her ability and her spiritual discernment. And instead of shutting her down, he supported her because he could have. Just think about those days. If he had wanted her to quit, he probably could have made that happen could have said, if your place is to be back in my home, that's probably where Deborah would have had to be. Um, But I think about his support of her, and perhaps it's true that deliverance would have never come in Deborah's lifetime without that support. And so I think the idea that I'm getting at here is that even capable women need to be led wisely. And so I guess my challenge to you husbands and fathers when you're recognizing gifting in your wives and in your daughters, if the Lord has blessed them with great ability, I would say make it your ambition and your mission to lead them into proper stewardship of such gifting. By doing so, I think you bless the entire body of Christ. I just know, like, I desire for my wife and my daughters to be sound theologically. Like, I want them to be bold for the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want them to sharpen their minds and their souls for kingdom service. And I don't want to be intimidated if I see that happening. Let's encourage and support the women in our lives. Let's cause them to flourish spiritually because that type of leadership glorifies God. So looking at Deborah, I think we can be inspired by her calling. But we can also be inspired by her confidence in God. So let's take a few minutes now and consider Deborah's confidence. Take notice of her confidence. First, see how confident she was in God's word. In verses 6 and 7, we, say, we see this. She sent and summoned Barak. So God spoke to her and said, I want you to give this message. And she summons Barak. And she says to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, and meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops. And I will give him into your hand. 
Here's what I noticed about it. God spoke to her and said, do this, deliver this message, and there's no hesitation on her part. God spoke and she acted. She didn't question him. She summons Barak, telling him the Lord said, go, so go. She didn't spend time wondering if maybe she had misunderstood or questioning if the plan was sound. God spoke, God commanded, and Deborah acted in obedience. I can't help but look at this and her, her show of confidence and compare her to the next judge that's presented to us in the book of Judges, which is Gideon. And by the way, I love the story of Gideon, and I don't want to get full on into Gideon tonight, but I do want to contrast Gideon's response to God and Deborah's response for just a moment. Because when God appears and tells Gideon in 6, 12 through 13, he says, the Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. And I'll just pause there for a moment. I know if God appeared to me and he said, oh, Steve, the Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. I'm probably down on my face immediately, right? Like before him, probably scared to death, but there's a part of me that's encouraged, right? Like he just called me a valiant warrior. Like I would love to hear that. But in Gideon, we see like doubt. He basically is saying, oh yeah, then, If this is true, then why has Midian captured us? Basically, this is what we hear Gideon saying. In verse 13, he says, where are all the miracles that our fathers told us about? He's basically saying, I'm not sure I can trust you, God. And in verse 14, God tells him, Gideon, I'm going to use you to deliver my people from the hand of Midian. But again, Gideon doubts, and he basically says, how can I do that? I'm too small, like I'm the the weakest, like I'm not sure this this can happen. But God patiently responds to him, and he says, I'm going to be with you. Like verse 16, Gideon, I'm going to be with you. You don't have to be afraid. But Gideon still doubts him, and he basically says in verse 17, well, then give me a sign. And so this back and forth goes on between God and Gideon for the rest of the chapter. And and then when it is time for Gideon to step up and go and fight the battle the Lord's calling him to, Gideon kind of comes and he says, hey, Lord, Lord, I've got this fleece, and it's dry. So I'm going to lay it out, and tomorrow morning, if there's water in it, then I'm going to know that it was really you speaking, and I'm going to go. And so he goes to sleep, and he wakes up, and guess what? The fleece is wet. And then he comes to God, and he says, God, I got this fleece, and it's really wet. And so tonight, what I'm going to do, I'm going to lay it out, and tomorrow, if it's dry, then I'm going to know you talked to me, and I'm going to go. I mean, talk about dragging your feet, right? And, and I don't know, like, there's a little bit of hesitancy on the part of Gideon. Like, I'm not sure that full confidence is in God's word in that moment. Now compare Gideon's response again to Deborah in 4.6. And notice with Deborah, there's not this hesitation. God speaks to her and gives her the message. And Deborah is confident that God's going to keep his promise. But so are all true prophets. Don't forget, she was a prophet, right? She knew God was going to be faithful to his word. Likely, she had already seen God's promises fulfilled in other situations And likely, this is the very reason, this very relationship with God is why the men around her respected her so highly in that day. She said God was going to act, and then he did. Now, we may find it wondrous that God would use a woman in those days, but really, why should we? God always delights in using what appears to be weak to overcome the strong. Don't we read in 1 Corinthians 1.27, God chose what is weak in this world to shame the strong? And why would God do something like this? Because 1 Corinthians 1.29 tells us, so no one may boast before him. Right? And all of this because 
Spoiler alert, right? Like, you guys already know this. Deborah's not the hero in the story. I mean, she's part. She is a hero, but she's not the hero in this story. And by the way, neither is any man or any other woman. God is the hero in this story. God is the faithful one who delivers on his promises, using whomever he chooses to bring himself glory, as it should be. Look at verse 15. And we see this. It says, And the Lord routed Sisera. Who routed him? The Lord did this work. It's the Lord who is winning this battle. He routs him and all of his chariots before Barak. The victory belonged to God. And I believe Deborah understood this because God told her this is what would happen. And we see her confidence that God will keep his promise. And what was that promise? Look back with me at verse number seven for just a moment. God said, I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hands. God is going to do the work. God is going to be the hero. God ultimately would use Barak as the means to accomplish this, uh, sort of this attack on Jabin's army. He would deliver, Barak would deliver Israel by defeating Sisera and his 900 chariots of iron. And he ultimately, God, through Barak, would end that 20 years of oppression that Israel had been under. But this is where Deborah's confidence truly shines in comparison to the rest of Israel. Because this promise was very difficult for the people of Israel to believe. Let's look back at 4.3 for just a moment again. And this is what we read. The people of Israel cried out to God. They cried out to the Lord for help. For he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people cruelly for 20 years. Do you know what's interesting about that verse? It's the lack of faith in that statement. Think about it for a minute. There's a huge lack of faith. When you consider the history of Israel, Really, were 900 chariots too powerful for the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to defeat? I mean, was the God of Moses and Joshua not able to beat 900 chariots of iron? 4.3 is not emphasizing the military strength of Canaan as much as it is emphasizing Judah's lack of faith in God. And this lack of faith caused the Israelites to cower before their enemies resulting in decades of oppression. And so I just think as I read that, couldn't the same thing be said about us? What spiritual battles with sin in your life do you not believe God has the power to win? Think about that for a minute. What is it you struggle with? Does God not have enough power to win that battle in your life? Where do we attempt to make peace with sin in our life because we don't believe God will drive the sin out? We struggle with this. What is the iron chariot keeping us from confidence in our Lord? If we don't take time to trust in the promises of God, we potentially hinder our spiritual growth for years, maybe decades. But Deborah had confidence in God's promise. And she tells Barak to man up, right? And in verse 8, we read his response. He says, if you go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, 
I will not go. So we read this response, and I think we give Barak a hard time. I think because of the hesitation that we see in him, right? And he is hesitating. The hesitation causes us to view Barak as timid and as a weak-willed man hiding behind a woman. We view Barak as afraid to go into battle alone, and by alone I mean without Deborah. That's kind of what we see in Barak in this moment. But is it really Deborah he's afraid to go without? Or is it God that he's afraid to go without? Remember Gideon, who put out the fleece twice questioning God? We don't view him as timid or weak at all. He is held up as a strong, heroic figure. And so when we start to put some of this together, I really don't think the evidence completely supports the idea that Barak was weak or timid. I don't think he was a weak or a timid man. I think he was hesitating. But I don't think he's weak It does suggest he was hesitant to go into battle without some sense of assurance. And he needed assurance from the Lord. And Deborah had that assurance. He needed to have faith to trust in God himself. But instead, he was trusting in Deborah's faith. That's the problem with Barak. But think about him for a moment. Let's consider who this man is. His name's Barak. Do you know what that means? It means lightning. Like, how do you get the name lightning, right? Like, that's a cool nickname. I guess it's not his nickname, but he was called lightning. He was a warrior, and he led an army of warriors, which is just not a position for a timid man. Also consider when the fighting began, Barak was right in the middle of the fight, leading his men. He wasn't hanging out in the back, watching the battle take place. In verses 15 and 16, we see that he was pursuing the fleeing army. It's hardly the actions of a timid and a weak man. So instead, I believe Barak had confidence in his ability as a leader of soldiers. But it seems Barak did not have confidence in his own relationship with God. After all, remember, Barak lived in a time when each man did according to what was right in his own eyes. This idea defined Israel during the day, and Barak would have been no exception to that. So he wasn't walking in obedience to God. Instead, Barak was walking in obedience to his own heart. So it's possible when Barak looked at Deborah and he saw her confidence and her assurance in the promise of the Lord and he saw the Lord speaking through her, it's possible that when he looked at her, he saw something lacking in his own spiritual life. It's likely he thought, I've got skill and I've got the knowledge. I've got military ability and know-how, but I don't have direct access to God. Therefore, Barak is hesitant. Look at verses 8 and 9. So he tells Deborah, I'll go if you come with me. And what we see is that God's going to allow Barak to lean on Deborah's faith, but he's not going to receive the glory for the battle. So the glory is going to go to a woman. So he hesitated And it's easy to read this and to hear Deborah saying to him, because of your timidity, you won't get the glory for this victory. Instead, God will give it to a woman. But could it be that his hesitancy was due to his lack of faith? Because what I believe is actually happening is maybe Barak is acknowledging what Deborah brings to the table. He understands that she's in a position to hear directly from God. Now, what military leader wouldn't want access to such direct knowledge when he's about to enter a battle? 
Barak is a man of action. He would want results. He recognizes his spiritual limitations. He likely envied Deborah's access to God, which he lacked it. He needed a faith boost. Deborah had faith. It's the one thing Barak lacked for success. In addition, he knows Deborah is respected by the men in the community. Likely, she will provide a boost to them as well, which isn't surprising, right? When we lack faith, God often uses others in our life to boost our faith. And so here God uses Deborah to multiply Barak's faith, and then he leads 10,000 men to destroy King Jabin, even at a great military disadvantage. And these people get to see God act and fight on their behalf. That's pretty awesome. Now, Deborah told Barak that the victory would come through the hands of a woman and he wouldn't receive the glory. But I don't believe the glory was ever his to receive in the first place. God's the hero of the story and the glory is always his. But as is often the case with our gracious God, God does provide honor for Barak. Because later, Barak is mentioned in the Hebrews Hall of Faith in Hebrews eleven thirty-two through 33, and he's mentioned right beside Gideon. And so tonight we've seen Deborah's confidence in the Lord's promise and how God used it to inspire and encourage others like Barak. But how about us this evening? Whom does your faith in God inspire? Or are you like Barak? If so, where can you enlist the help of other believers to help you fulfill God's purposes for your life? And by the way, as another unsung hero, God did use a woman to help bring about victory in the story. Very quickly, let's look at Jael. She deceives Sisera as he's fleeing Barak. She brought him into her tent with the promise of rest and secrecy. And then in verse 21, she drove a tent peg through his skull. And as Deborah had prophesied, a woman received the glory in this conflict. And in jail, I think we see a, a contrast to Deborah. Deborah we, in Deborah, we see God's great gifting. In jail, she's just an ordinary woman, right? Like she's, uh, she's just in the right place at the right time ordinary talent, and yet God still uses her to defeat Israel's enemy. And I think that should be extremely encouraging to us tonight. It just reminds me that we don't have to be the best to be used by God. We don't have to have a long list of successes or degrees to be valuable to the Lord. We just need to be willing to be available and to play our part to fulfill our role. Now, what's most amazing about Jael is how her story points us back to the promise that we see all the way back in the beginning of scriptures in Genesis 3.15. Right after the fall, when God promises that he's going to send a savior and he tells the serpent that he will bruise your head and yet you will bruise his heel. The first promise of the gospel. The first mention of the promised savior who would crush the head of the enemy. And Jael's actions remind us of this promise. We remember that bad guys get their skulls crushed and that our ultimate deliverance would come through a woman's son who would crush the head of the serpent. So be encouraged this evening because God is always moving. I remember the very 
early days of my faith walk when I first came to know the Lord. And the lessons, these men that God put around me in those days and they taught and they, they demonstrated such great love and concern for someone, first of all, they didn't even know. Like they found me on the campus. They didn't know me. They shared the gospel with me, demonstrating the love of Christ to me. And very quickly in my faith walk, they taught me Matthew 28, 18 through 20, the Great Commission. And I was inspired by the Great Commission. I think you guys know it, right? I was encouraged in those days to memorize it and to seek to play my part in fulfilling it. And I'm sure you're familiar with it, but just as a refresher, let me remind you of what the Great Commission calls us to. It says, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I think in those early days when I began to understand what God was calling us to in this commission, it's the first time I realized I can be some, a part of something. I can be part of something that's much bigger than myself. And as I learned about my responsibility and what Jesus had commanded his church to be about, I wanted to be part of that. Hudson Taylor said the Great Commission is not an option to be considered. It is a command to be obeyed. John Wesley said you have one business on earth to save souls. Isaiah the prophet said, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. Friends, we've been given a purpose and we each have a role to play in fulfilling that purpose. We've each been gifted and we've been positioned to play our part in that task. So let me encourage you this evening. God is moving Seek to be available like jail. Be humble and willing like Bayrock. Be supportive like Lapidoth. And be faithful and confident like Deborah. Because when you do, you will begin being faithful to your part. And it will glorify Jesus Christ and position you to help fulfill the work that he's left for us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for purpose. Thank you for a chance to live out and share the gospel with others. We ask that as we go about this task, you would help us to love like Christ and to be bold like so many of your servants who came before us. May you find us willing and available to do all that you called us to do until you call us home. We pray this to Jesus.